Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the big stories that developed this week, 45 years after committing his first murder, Joseph James D'Angelo has pled guilty to being the Golden State Killer. He went by a ton of different names. It was the Golden State Killer. It was the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker, the Visalia Ransacker. He had a bunch of names. In total, he pled guilty to 13 counts of murder, 13 counts of kidnap, and 62 rapes and other crimes he was not officially charged with. Under a plea deal that he struck earlier, he will serve life in prison without parole and be spared the death penalty. For more on the Golden State Killer's guilty plea, we'll speak to Sam Stanton, reporter for the Sacramento Bee. Essentially, this is taking place at a ballroom in the student union at Sac State University here. And there's about 100 people, a lot of them family members of victims or victims themselves. And we're all seated uh, six feet apart in uh, chairs, surrounded by law enforcement. And there's a stage set up against one wall where Judge Michael Bowman is sitting in the center and to his left, D'Angelo is sitting in a wheelchair between two public defenders. D'Angelo is wearing a face shield, as are the uh, public defenders. And he uh, is speaking in a very frail voice. The family members here do not believe he's in bad health. They think it's all an act. I've been told that as well by some of my sources. But he appears weak. And he's essentially just said, the judge has said, how do you plead to this? And he'll say, guilty or I admit guilty to the charged counts or I admit to the uncharged counts. Yeah, I was watching some of the video, the live video from it, and he does seem very frail. And man, I just listening to his voice, he's not saying much, as you mentioned, guilty or I admit, but even that just sounds creepy. But one of the Sacramento deputy DAs even recalled that when they caught him, this was just two years ago, that he was racing around town on a motorcycle. He seemed to be living a vigorous life. And yeah, now he seems like he's aged 20 years in just two. He just seems so frail. But as you mentioned, it could be an act. They don't believe that for a second. And that's one of the reasons they pointed out he was racing around town on this motorcycle, blowing through stop signs. He was doing yard work in his yard in the week before they uh, picked him up at his home in Citrus Heights. So they're not buying this at all. But they're just happy that they've finally gotten this thing to the point where he's uh, admitting his guilt. As we talked about previously, uh, he's admitting guilt to all of this so they can avoid a very lengthy and costly murder trial and all, uh, death penalty trial. In all total, what are the guilty counts? What is he admitting guilt to now? Well, there are 13 murders that begin in 1975 down in Tulare County. And there are 13 kidnap for robbery charges. And those actually are rapes. But because of the statute of limitations, they had to charge them as kidnap for robbery counts. So he's pleading guilty to all 26 of those counts. He's going to end up with 26 life sentences from those. He'll never get out of prison. But in addition to those, there are 62 uncharged counts involving rapes, burglaries and crimes of that nature. And he's being forced to admit to each one of them. And there's they go into painstaking detail, even yeah. on the uncharged counts about what he did in these people's homes. 
it 100% is a lengthy process because of what you just said. And as I mentioned, I was tuning into some of that. You can hear the prosecutors detailing each case, each account. And then that's when he comes in with that creepy voice. I admit to it. So definitely a lengthy process to go through the whole thing. And there are victims here. Sometimes they'll stand up as their case is being read and they'll stand there and either look at him or they look at the prosecutor who's reading the case file. What happens next after this? I know there was supposed to originally be when the uh, trial was supposed to start about in August or something. What's the next thing that happens after he admits guilt here? We're going to come back here in August. I believe it's the 17th. We're going to be at Sac State again, unless there's a magical uh, vaccine created for uh, COVID. And we'll be um, here for at least a day. It could go more than a day because they've told the victims today that you will be allowed to speak as long as you want about what he did to you and your families. And so who knows how long that'll take. This has been a wild ride of a case since it really came back again in 2018 when they finally caught him. And we've talked about this before, Sam, how the people in the area of Sacramento when this was going on were just living in fear every day because of the frequency of the tax and just how everything was happening. And then when they finally caught him in this kind of revolutionary way that they used DNA evidence and compared it on family tree websites to catch him. I mean, this has just been a crazy case from the beginning. And I'll tell you what really was driven home to me this morning is to hear them describe these crimes in their detail and then to hear him say guilty to each one of them while these victims are looking on. It just drives home what a monster this guy is. You know, you can't sugarcoat it. He's admitting that he did these crimes and they are horrific. What is his reaction during this? I've read multiple, multiple times, and I'm looking at this live feed every now and then, and he's just sitting there. I mean, really, there is no reaction, really. No, his mouth is agape. He's just sitting there, and they have to kind of urge, coax him to to say the word loud enough for everybody to hear. They hold a microphone up under his face shield so that we can hear guilty. But there is no reaction. It's just an amazing scene there. And, And for now, as we mentioned, Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. admitting guilt uh, that he is the Golden State Killer and we'll get to the rest of this as soon as sentencing begins and the case continues to progress. Sam Stanton, reporter at the Sacramento Bee, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Another story that had a big development this week, Ghislaine Maxwell, she's the longtime associate and accused madam for Jeffrey Epstein has been arrested on charges that she recruited and groomed underage girls for abuse by Epstein. The charges say that Maxwell would try to befriend the young girls by asking them questions about their personal life and taking them shopping, and normalize the abuse by discussing sexual topics and undressing before them and prompting them to give Epstein massages. For more on the arrest and charges that Ghislaine Maxwell faces, we'll speak to Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at the Washington Post. So when Jeffrey Epstein hung himself last year, a lot of his victims felt it was another way of him cheating justice, and they feared that it would help some of his associates, like Jelaine Maxwell, also cheat justice. But what the indictment unsealed today shows is that prosecutors kept at it, and they have compiled accounts of three former victims who say that Jelaine Maxwell essentially helped recruit and groom these young girls, frankly, to be abused sexually by Jeffrey Epstein, who was at the time, back in the 90s, dating Joy Maxwell. According to the papers that we have in from court, 
they said that this was beginning in at least 1994 to about 1997 or so, at least where these charges are kind of centered on. And what did they describe? How did Maxwell help groom the victims for Jeffrey Epstein? Well, she befriended them. You know, in one instance, Epstein arranged for a young girl to fly out to New Mexico where he had a home. And Maxwell and Epstein then took her out to a movie and took her shopping. And, and, you know, they would basically try to be friends with these young girls. And then, as has been alleged in other cases filed against Epstein, they would begin this pretty twisted practice of essentially enticing the girls to give Epstein massages in various states of undress. And then that behavior would eventually escalate into just straight up sexual abuse. The papers also said that Maxwell would try to normalize some of this abuse by discussing sexual topics. She would undress in front of the victims also and be present for some of this stuff. So this is all kind of a way to, I guess, acclimate them to it so that Jeffrey Epstein could do what he wanted to do. There was also some uh, charges of perjury against Maxwell. Where did those come from? So one of the things that happened, I mean, remember that the Jeffrey Epstein saga is like a 20 year unbelievable adventure through the legal system, basically. And what happened in 2016 was Ghislaine Maxwell was deposed, questioned by a lawyer for one of Epstein's alleged victims. And not surprisingly, she got a lot of questions about did she ever see Epstein abusing young girls? Did she ever know of what Epstein was doing with these young girls? Was she aware of any of this massages with young girls going on? And she just denied it all. So when you do that in a deposition in a lawsuit, you expose yourself to a possible perjury charge. And that's what she is charged with now because prosecutors say those denials were lies because they have witnesses saying that they saw her do those things. That part of it in Florida, that's where Jeffrey Epstein got that quote unquote sweetheart deal where I think he only went to jail for about 13 months, but he was in this weird work release program where he was able to leave jail through various points throughout the day. One of the things that people find so infuriating about the Epstein case is he was caught once before, and he seems to have used his money and his influence and his power to essentially get an incredibly sweet deal out of it, meaning he got a jail sentence that wasn't really about going to jail. He was allowed to go to his office and work, and he had basically his own private security, you know, basically stand around him when he did have to go to sleep in the jail. But also as part of that deal, people forget, as part of that deal, Florida prosecutors agreed not to pursue cases against anyone who helped him find and abuse these girls. And so today is another way in which the charges against Ghislaine Maxwell is another way in which the Justice Department is saying that was done wrongly the first time. And we are going to try to fix that egregious error. How did they eventually catch up with her? Because as I mentioned earlier, there was this kind of hunt for her. People were trying to keep an eye out for her. I think prosecutors said that she slithered away to a gorgeous property in New Hampshire. So how did they eventually catch up with her this time around? So I think her whereabouts have been far more of a mystery to the public than they have been to the FBI. What officials said today was essentially, well, we more or less always knew where she was because we're investigating her. We have to know that. And obviously she has dual citizenship. There's a lot of things that they would have to be concerned about with someone with her wealth and you know ability to move out of the country. So I think investigators, my understanding is investigators have long known where she was and were just putting their case together. And they finally decided to take the move today. What happens next? What kind of time is she facing with these charges? It could be decades in prison if she's convicted of all these charges. 
So in the federal system, any sex crime charges tend to carry particularly tough sentences. Obviously, the case against her involves multiple victims and multiple incidents. So you will have to see how that evidence plays out in court if she decides to go to trial or if she takes a guilty plea. We just don't know yet. But she's facing an incredible amount of time and prosecutors are already arguing that she should not get bail because of how much time she faces and because they're worried she might flee the country if she's given bail. Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And turning to the coronavirus pandemic, it's happening again. As we move to reopen the country, cases are starting to surge and the demand for testing is increasing. But testing shortfalls are causing long lines in hard-hit states such as Florida, Texas, and California. Without a vaccine, testing has become the first line of defense, and delays are complicating everything. For more on how testing is hitting a snag again, we'll speak to Emma Court, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. The challenge here is, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, right, there was a, a shortfall of testing, People couldn't get tested, and that proved to be an impediment for other efforts to contain the virus's spread, things like contact tracing, other public health work. We're finding ourselves in a somewhat similar situation today, even though testing capacity has expanded significantly from that early kind of period. I think the best way to explain it really kind of comes down to those two core ideas of supply and demand. So Testing supplies, both swabs that take, you know, test sample to the sort of materials that preserve it while it's transported to the lab, to the equipment that runs the test, you know, it self-processes that test. These different parts of the supply chain have all come under strain, you know, over the last couple of months. And even though these aspects have been alleviated over time, they haven't been entirely solved. Now, whether it's even possible to solve it is a whole nother question, Right. But even as you have these persistent problems around supply and being able to supply tests to the American public, you also have demand getting really ratcheted up with the reopenings. Now you have nursing homes trying to test all of their employees. You have employers saying that they want to maybe provide testing to their employees as well. You have people who haven't even necessarily come into contact with someone who had the infection wanting to get tested just to be sure, right, before they gather with members of their family, for instance, or in social settings and things like that. So all of these things taken together kind of add up to a problem, and we're starting to see that problem coming out in these hotspot states that have begun to emerge, like Texas, you know, like Arizona. We're seeing long lines outside of urgent care centers, for instance. A hospital I spoke to in Houston said their lab had gotten double the amount of testing volume in the prior sort of week plus. So these are problems that are beginning to bubble up in these new focuses of the the pandemic, these parts of the country that are a new focus of the pandemic. And unfortunately, I think with the trajectory being what it is, you know, it sounds like these problems are going to continue over time. You mentioned Texas specifically. They have pretty robust setups for testing. I think they converted a few high school football stadiums or something like that so that people can roll through and get tested. And even then, you know, by midday, mid-morning or whatever, they've reached their capacity and they have to turn people away. So what it's translating to is really long wait times to actually get tested and then longer wait times to get those results back. What's important to note here is like in Texas in particular, we did some reporting in that state. And, you know, it wasn't just getting in to get the test, which in in many places you have to, in Texas, you basically have to 
get an appointment to get tested. So you might wait a week or something like that just to go get tested. And then at that point, we're likely to see weights for test results increase too. You know, one of the big trade groups that represents the big commercial labs here in the U.S. said basically they're forecasting a real big surge in demand in the coming weeks, and they're expecting that that may delay test results. Importantly, when you wait a long time for test results, I mean, a week is an extreme scenario, but even having to wait a couple of days, that's an amount of time that maybe if you're thinking, oh, I probably don't have COVID-19, I can go about my life, I can go to work, things like that, you know, that adds risk into the equation, basically. Yeah. And so the longer you wait for test results, the more likely this risk is going to compound. President Trump has said a lot that we've built the biggest testing system, you know, of everybody. The U.S. processed about 557,000 tests each day on average over the last week. But given the current outbreak, they say that we need millions, two to four million tests a day to really kind of track all of this stuff. The burden is all on the states. They get limited supplies and they have to allocate all that. So it's kind of a whole ripple effect because it's tough to keep that in track. And then beyond that, when it comes to contact tracing, all these delays make it much, much harder to do all that contact tracing. As you were just mentioning, people go about their business not getting a test and they can be infecting people and not really know it. What's important to note is we already have evidence in parts of the country that the virus is spreading in a a sustained way in the community. And so this is a point where contact tracing systems, if they're not already, you know, established and robust, can easily get overwhelmed um, when you have really large numbers in cases. For instance, I spoke with an official with uh, UT system in Texas who said basically, you know, you have 6,400 new cases one day and you keep getting those kinds of numbers each day, you know, a local health department just can't keep up, right? They're going to get overwhelmed. And so, I mean, ideally you wouldn't want to get to this point, but when you have like delays in test results or you have, for instance, aging infrastructure where test results are getting reported by stats, that slows down the process. And that's kind of where we are in the U.S. I mean, I don't think it can be underemphasized at this point that we have not invested in the kinds of infrastructure we need to get this infection under control, but it's not too late. You know, a lot of public health experts say we can still take these kinds of steps. We can still invest in public health infrastructure. We can still make more robust systems for testing. We can test smarter. That's when a lot of people have also said, maybe the focus shouldn't be on testing everyone. Maybe we should focus on the places where there's most likely to be transmission and also be smarter about how we reopen. What are the places in which the virus is most likely to sort of spread in the community that increasingly seems to be bars, right? We've heard that become a big talking point coming out of states where these hotspots have emerged. You know, Texas closed the bars late last week. We've heard Florida move towards taking similar steps as well. So I think there are some questions about if our infrastructure isn't up to snuff, are there ways we can tailor our approach? in a better manner. Emma Court, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.